0: Aloha everyone, welcome to our Wednesday Equip and Disciple Service. It is such an honor and privilege to be here with you, so thank you for joining us. We are going to prepare our hearts to receive the tithes and offering at this time. You know, prior to me, just about two seconds ago, coming up on the platform, singing that last song kind of moved me in a way, and all I could think about was just how God moves me in, in certain situations. A few months ago, I was in Montana, and I was hiking up on this ridgeline, and I was with a group of friends, and we were praising God, and we were able to look out into the vast mountain range and this open plain, and And a girl from Hawaii, you know, this was my first time in Montana, and I was up there, and I was like, whoa, how great is our God? The, the the creator of heaven and earth who calls me by name calls you by name and, and, and offers a, a place in his family and so please forgive me because I was so moved thank you so much to our worship team I'm standing there I'm singing I'm a little out of breath because I'm singing fully you know I'm singing out there like how great is our God he's so good and that's why it's so easy for us when we give we're a reflection of that love and he can move us in a way and sometimes we get caught up with our own needs which i get with our own circumstances i know but when we are able to release those things and step into his presence we're shifted in such a way that god gives us a different perspective and he he raises us up like i was on that ridge And he says, listen, I know when you're down here, it's hard to see, but when I, when you come with me, come, let me show you. And he gives us a different perspective when we give, especially when we give out of the generosity that he has given us in our DNA, when he created us, when we step into his presence and out of that comes, when we give in that spirit, our eyes are shifted And we can simply say, regardless of our circumstance, here I am, Lord. Here, this is yours. And we can say, how great is our God. How great is it that we have a Father that continues to call us, continues to pour out, and continues to use us. We are his church. Like Pastor Kat was saying, brothers and sisters, we are called by his name. We are set apart and we are brought into the family of Christ. And we get to do this together. And we get to move forward as the body of Christ. We are his representation of his heart. And so when we give, you're a mirror of God's heart. When we give out of generosity... We're marrying the Father. Let's pray. Lord God, Abba, how great is your name. Above all names, we exalt you above all things. Thank you for showing us. Thank you for calling us. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for giving to us first. So that in all of that, we can give back and we can trust you, and we can love you, and we can mirror you. Thank you for creating us to do so, giving us the ability to to walk in that. And so, Lord, I pray that you will not only bless the the tides and the offering, bless the hearts, Lord, of your people, of your children. Bless their circumstances. Bless their homes, their marriages, their relationships, their children, their grandchildren. Bless the atmosphere that which they are in right now. Bless their homes. Lord, we step into your presence and there's nothing like it, nothing greater, nothing compares to you. We love you. We love you, we love you, we love you. In Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen. Whew. See what worship does? Just changes people. I mean, I'm surprised I didn't come up here and start singing. I was like, you know worship, pay that again. I'm going to, let's do this. I'm so excited. I'm even more excited because, you know, as we're winding down, uh, journeying through the Bible, as we went through the books of the Bible, it's hard to believe we are in the last three, you know, we're going to have, uh, Jude tonight and Revelation twice. And I'm excited because Christian Gapol is going to be bringing the word tonight. So why don't you join me? We'll take a look at this.
1: the letter of Jude, or more accurately, Judah, according to the pronunciation of his name, both in Greek and in Hebrew. Judah was one of Jesus' four brothers who are named in the Gospel accounts. None of the brothers followed Jesus as the Messiah before his death, but afterwards, they saw him alive from the dead and then became his disciples. All these brothers of Jesus became leaders eventually in the first Jewish Christian communities and Judah was known as a traveling teacher and missionary. And This gives us the background to understand the purpose of his letter. We don't know what specific church community he wrote to, but it was likely made up of mostly Messianic Jews. His writing style assumes a deep knowledge of the Hebrew Old Testament scriptures as well as other popular Jewish literature. Judah had become aware of a crisis facing this church and so this helps us understand the letter's design. It begins with an opening charge followed by a long warning and accusation against corrupt teachers who had influenced this church. and Then Judah closes by completing the charge about what this church is supposed to do. Judah begins by charging this church to contend for the true Christian faith. He says his plan was to write a longer work that explored our shared salvation through the Messiah. But that project, he says, got delayed when he heard the urgent news about this church and so he fired off this very thoughtful but very short letter. Judah doesn't begin with how they are supposed to contend for the faith. Rather, he first goes into why. It is because of the corrupt teachers who have infiltrated this church. And it is not their teaching that he targets, but their way of life. Their moral compromise is what tells you they have bad theology. First of all, they have distorted God's grace as a license to sin. They think that they are forgiven and they have God's spirit, so now they can do whatever they want, especially when it comes to money and sex. And so, Judah says, they betray Jesus by rejecting his authority and his teachings. And Judah wants this church to know that the appearance of these teachers is no surprise. He transitions into a longer warning to stay away from them. He first offers two sets of three Old Testament examples. The first trio is about rebellious people who in the past received divine justice. So the Israelites who rebelled against God in the wilderness, they got what they wanted and they died out in the middle of nowhere. Then he brings up a story about angels who are imprisoned for rebellion until they face God's justice. He's referring to the interpretation of the story in Genesis 6, offered in the popular Jewish work called First Enoch, where the sons of God are interpreted to refer to angels who rebelled against God, had sex with women and were judged accordingly. Judah links this story to his third example about the ruin of Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis where violent men tried to have sex with angels. Both these stories are about rebellion against God's order that led to sexual immorality and that's precisely what the corrupt teachers are guilty of. After this, Judah brings up a bonus example from a popular Jewish text called the Testament of Moses. Like Enoch, it was not part of the Old Testament scriptures, and it was a creative retelling of Moses' final days and words based on Deuteronomy. In the section that Judah quotes from, Moses has died, and there's a good angel, Michael, who is refuting the devil's accusations against Moses, but he decides to leave final judgment for God alone. Now, these stories might seem kind of odd to you, but for Jewish people who were raised on this literature, Judah's warnings make good sense. The behavior of these corrupt teachers has ancient roots. Rebellion against God's authority, sexual immorality, rejecting God's messengers. And this connects to the second trio of examples. They're all about rebels who went on to corrupt other people. So Cain, he murdered his brother, but then he went on to build a city where violence reigned. Balaam, the sorcerer, he couldn't curse Israel, and so he lured them into idolatry and sexual corruption. And then Korah, the Levite, he led a rebellion against Moses that ended in disaster for others. Judah concludes the second trio with a barrage of Old Testament images to describe the teachers. They're like the selfish shepherds of Ezekiel, or like the clouds with no rain from Proverbs, or like the chaotic waves from Isaiah. Their self-absorption betrays their claim to follow Jesus. They create chaos wherever they go. Judah concludes his warning by quoting from two other warnings one ancient and one recent. The first comes again from the popular book of first Enoch which claimed to contain the visions of the ancient figure Enoch from the book of Genesis. Now what's fascinating is Judah quotes from the opening chapter of Enoch which is itself quoting about half a dozen Old Testament texts about the final day of the Lord's justice on human evil. Judah then matches Enoch's ancient warning with a more recent one from the apostles. Peter, John, Paul, they all predicted that corrupt teachers would arise and distort the good news about Jesus. And they themselves were echoing Jesus' early warning about the same thing. And so this church should need no more convincing. These teachers have to be dealt with. So, Judah then moves into his closing charge. He picks up his opening line about contending for the faith and he unpacks how to do so with a cool set of metaphors. He describes the community of Jesus as God's new temple and so they are to build their lives on the foundation of the most holy faith which refers to the core message of good news about Jesus' life, death and resurrection for our sins. On that foundation, the church is to build itself through a dedication to prayer by devoting itself to the love of God through obedience. And the integrity of this building will be maintained by staying alert for the return of Jesus to bring his justice and his mercy. And in doing this, they will help each other stay faithful to Jesus. Judah then concludes by praising the God who will protect his people and keep them from falling too far from his grace. The short letter of Judah is powerful and puzzling for many modern readers who ask why he quotes from texts that aren't today considered part of the Hebrew Bible, like 1 Enoch or the Testament of Moses. It's important to remember that Jewish culture in this time was immersed in religious texts. Jesus, his family, all the early Jewish Christians grew up reading the Hebrew Bible along with many later books that were based on and inspired by the scriptures. And we know there were ancient debates about whether or not some of these later books should be viewed as scripture but regardless they're still important a book doesn't have to be in the bible to speak an important message to god's people and so we have many jewish texts from this period they're known today as the collections of the apocrypha also called the deuterocanon along with the pseudepigrapha these were all preserved and read in jewish and christian communities they were treated with great respect It doesn't mean they were originally designed as part of the Hebrew Bible, but they are part of the biblical tradition. And so Judah, knowing his readers that they would value words from First Enoch, he used them to communicate his message, which is this. God's grace through Jesus demands a whole life response, not just intellectual assent. Notice that Judah doesn't criticize or focus on the teacher's theology, but their immoral way of life, which denies Jesus. And so Judah is here applying what Jesus first told his disciples. If you really love me, then you will obey my teachings. For Christians, how you live is the most reliable indicator of what you actually believe. And that's what the letter of Jude
2: is all about. Well, here we are right near the end of our series called Journeying Through the Bible. We are at the penultimate book of the Bible. Penultimate meaning second to last. So if ever you want to use a big word, sounds kind of impressive. Penultimate means second to last. But what is this super important book about? Well, the book of Jude is a passionate plea to continue to stay vigilant against false teachers. But it always kind of struck me odd. And I'll be honest, as we went through this book or this series called "Journeying Through the Bible and we went through the New Testament and whenever I read the New Testament, I always asked myself, why are they putting so much emphasis on false teaching? And I was like, I don't really hear a lot of false teaching. You know, maybe it's just something we don't deal with now. And funnily enough, I think like a week after that, I was on social media and I found someone uh, preaching. And I was listening and it was something... And I was just like, man, that's really something I don't see on the Scripture. Like, I don't see it that way. And I kept listening, and I was like, wow, I really don't agree with that at all. And as it continued to go more and more, preaching and giving Scripture, I was like, this really sounds contrary to the Bible as I know it. And I won't get into exactly the teaching or anything, but suffice to say, false teaching is absolutely still going on, and it is just as crafty as ever. And to help lay the foundation of what we're going to be talking about today and about how serious it is, in Matthew 13, we can see Jesus giving an explanation of this. And in Matthew 13, Jesus gives this parable about a sower uh, throwing seeds out. And after he gives that, he explains what each of the seeds meant. And each of the seeds had trouble growing um, in this way or this condition. So here's what Jesus uh, says to explain it. In Matthew 13, 18, and 19, he says, Listen then to what the parable of the sower means. When anyone hears the message about the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what was sown in their heart. This is the seed sown along the path. Every time I hear that, I get a little bit of a chill because if we hear the message and don't understand it, that's where the evil one comes in and can snatch away what was done in our heart. And that doubly makes me a little bit scared because, honestly, the Bible is a very complex and long work, and it's really easy to get confused. It likes to reference itself. It likes to reference culture that isn't the same as our culture. It has... Uh, different time periods. It references different places, different things. And it's fairly easy to get confused. But that's why teachers of the word are so important. It's so important that in James, it talks about how teachers are to be held at a higher standard. It, this, it says it this way in James 3.1. Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. Whew. So understanding the word is very important. And that's why they double down on the fact that false teaching is a very important issue to be aware of. And so with all that being said, we're going to go back to what Jude is trying to tell us in Jude 1, 3. He says, Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. Jude is asking us, he's urging us to contend for the faith. Urgent, so urgent that he had to write a le- letter that like, sidetracked his other thing that he wanted to do. And if you're like me and you're not really 100% sure what contend means, contend means to strongly assert and it's also sometimes translated as defend for the faith against those who wish to twist God's word. This is a huge problem because the Bible is our key to life. It's, our conne- it's one of our connections to God. So when we misinterpret or when we get misled on the Bible, we can get or we can misinterpret or be misled on God's will for us. And that can have drastic consequences. So, with all of those dire warnings and fun stuff, how do we protect ourselves from false teaching? And how can we be sure that we are following the true will and word of God? Well, there are three points. And the first one is this to look for the fruit of their teaching. Look for the fruit of their teaching. See, if you're unsure or you're blindsided by a teaching, like I was on that one day, one of the best ways to determine whether something contains the Spirit of God is to look for the fruit or the results of what that teaching would come from. I had to include this point in because this is a point from the mouth of Jesus. In Matthew 7, 17, he says it this way. He says, to watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly, they, were for, they are ferocious wolves. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Jesus teaches us to look for the fruit or the results of their teaching. Because many false prophets, many false teachers will come to us like sheep. They'll come to us in ways that seem, sorry, my notes got all scrambled. But they'll come to us in ways that seem innocent. Like I said, that false, or that teaching that I didn't see or didn't line up with the word of God was quoting scripture. And it was speaking into areas that needed to be spoken in problem areas they were trying to answer very tough questions you know and questions that are really hard to answer and when i was i was uh watching that i got really really taken aback i guess just because i saw wow that was such a crafty thing and then i looked because they said, you know, hey, if you look into the Greek, this is what it says. Hey, if you look into this translation, this was what it said. And then I said, okay, I want to look into the Greek and see. So I did. I actually I looked in and it was not that. And I was like, wow, they almost preyed on me on people saying, Yeah, you know, I don't know Greek. That's fine. It was very convincing. We can continue on. See. Whoo, computers every time. Well, what are the fruits of the Spirit of God? What are the results that we should be looking for? Well, in Galatians five twenty two to 23, it lists it out. It says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such thing, there is no law. When the Holy Spirit is talking, it promotes those things. It promotes love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So if someone is teaching and saying that they are representing or they're being inspired by the Spirit of God and their teaching does not promote those things, be very wary. Just like how you cannot sow apple seeds and expect a banana tree to spring up. If someone is claiming that they are in the Word of God and they are not getting the fruit of His Spirit, be very wary of exactly what that teacher that teaching is promoting. However, there is power in understanding the Scriptures. One of the things that helped me when I found that teaching, because again, it was in a very problematic area that I wasn't 100% sure of, but there is power in understanding the Scripture. And with that being said, the second thing that we can look at to help us contend for the faith is when we study the scriptures we have to study the scriptures and yes I know it is a long book sometimes it's confusing thankfully we have a bookmark where we can go through daily with devotions we can break it down there are many amazing pastors many amazing brothers and sisters in Christ that if you are confused you can go to I always say this way never be ashamed of questions that you have about the Bible because I ask questions all the time. But it's very important that we study the scriptures. See, if I were to bring up this right here and I said it is a dollar, already you'd kind of be like, well, that doesn't look like a real dollar, especially if I go like this. Because this is monopoly money. We can tell that it's fake because we know what a real dollar looks like. You can look at it and be like, well... Normal dollars have things on two sides. Normal dollars aren't that light green. They don't have the monopoly man on them. They don't say monopoly. But if I gave them to a child, if I gave this to a child and I said, Hell, here, here's a dollar, go buy yourself something, they might not know the difference. We've got to know what is real before we can spot what is fake. And the thing about it is, it's not enough to only know certain scriptures. And overall understanding of the Bible is, ext- is extremely important. Why is that? Well, we can look in Matthew 4, 5-7 to see that. Because in Matthew 4, 5-7, we see Satan trying to tempt Jesus. And here I'll read it. It says, Then the devil took him up into the holy city, set him on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written he shall give his angels charge over you and in their hands they shall bear you up lest you dash your foot against a stone. Satan just quoted the Bible. And then Jesus said to him, it is written again, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. You can see in this scripture, Satan using the words of God. And how does Jesus counter him? He doesn't counter Satan by calling in an army of angels to wipe Satan out. He doesn't counter him by you know, banishing him with the authority that he has or anything like that. No, he counters him with his understanding of the scriptures. The word of God has power. And when it's wielded correctly, it's the sword of the spirit, one of our greatest weapons against temptations of the enemy. Because when we do understand the word of God, we understand who God is. We understand how he loves us, and he, we understand his will for us as his people. There's another part about knowing the scriptures because there's another thing that some people like to do when they see scriptures, and it's very easy when you only know a few scriptures, and it's some people like to lawyer scriptures Well they'll look around it and they say, you know, hey, did God really say this? Or hey, is the Bible doesn't really say anything about this. A lot of people use that as a way of justifying sin. And they twist the word of God to justify sin. Well, that's not a new concept. See, twisting. The word of God to justify sin played a role in the very first sin. In Genesis 3, 1 6, we can read that right here that now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. And there it was, the first sin. And it came from the serpent twisting the word of God. When we dig in deep and fall in love with the word of God, we'll start to see how destructive it is to skirt along the scriptures. There are many things in our modern life that the Bible does not talk about, but the principles are there. Sure, it may be easy to say, yes, the Bible does not say to do this. But the Bible has the principles for it. Well, when we do know the Word, though, and the Scriptures, and we're in love with the Scripture, there's one final thing we can do to help contend for the faith, and it's this. It is to look out for others. And while we have to contend for our own faith, we're not in it alone. Like I said before, we have many brothers and sisters in Christ. And at the end of Jude's letter, he signs off with this first. He says, but you, dear friends, in Jude 1, 20 to 21, he says, but you, dear friends, must build each other up in your most holy faith, pray in the power of the Holy Spirit, and await the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will bring you eternal life in this way you will keep yourself safe in God's love we all have blind spots areas where we don't really know things that can trip us up we all have weaknesses as such it helps to have a brother or sister who can help build up your faith and in turn you can help build up theirs However, part of looking out for others isn't just to help build them up, but it is also to save them from corrupt teaching. Jude continues in Jude 1, to 23. He says, Be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To others, show mercy, mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corrupted flesh. See, he calls mercy Or he calls for mercy for the doubters. But calls us to save them from the fire. Or even snatch them from the fire. And I love that. And I looked into this verse a little bit more because I wanted to make sure that I got everything right on this one. And the commentary said, they used snatch from the fire to show how desperate of a thing this is. If you saw someone on fire, if someone was very near to a fire, you would do everything you could to save this person. And that is the urgency that he gives to us. To save others by snatching them from the fire. And for those who do even more than doubt, he calls us to still have mercy, but also fear. Even those who give the false teaching we're still called to show mercy but mixed with that fear. We're still called to try and snatch them from that fire but with an added thing of be careful not to get infected by corrupted teaching. See, it's great to have knowledge of the scriptures. It's amazing to fall in love with the word of God but we are not called to use it to elevate ourselves above other people. We are called to mercy for those who have doubts, for those who are, who misunderstand. And why is that? Well, because it is not by our power that we are kept from stumbling. It's not by our power that we can be blameless in the presence of God. In the final words of the book of Jude, it says it this way, in Jude 1, 24 to 25, It says, To Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before His glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now and forever. Amen. Ultimately, it is God that is the one that gives us the power to stand without stumbling. It is the actions of Jesus that allowed us to be in the presence of God. It wasn't our wisdom. It wasn't our knowledge or actions that saved us. It's the grace of God. So in that way, we're not called to use that head knowledge, use the knowledge of the scriptures to condescend to others, to demean others. We're called to use it to help snatch others from the fire. See, our faith in Jesus and God is not something that is forged easily. It takes intentional action. It takes time. It takes it takes a relationship being built. And as we saw, there are many obstacles in the way. And not even just false teachers. There are many distractions around us, vying for our attention, trying to lure us away from God at every moment. Moment, And so I just urge To continue in that walk To help here are some reflection questions That we can use to help apply the message The first one is What are some of the tough questions That you've encountered being a Christian And the reason why is These are our hard You know these are the places where We're going to get blindsided These are the places where we're not so sure And those are the places we should double down. The second question is, what are the areas that you find that cause you to stumble in your own faith? And have you found any scriptures that help you in these areas? In the weakness in your own armor, how are you covering it? Are you covering it with your hand or are you covering it with the word of God? And if you are having a tough time, again, I'm going to push the community that we have here. We have so many brothers and sisters who love you and want to help you and empower you with the word of God. And the third one, who are some people in your life that God is putting on your heart to snatch them from the fire? With mercy, don't forget the mercy part but also don't forget the urgency in which that that metaphor is given to us. Will you bow your heads with me as we pray? Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I just pray, and I thank you so much for being a God who gave us your word, your word that is holy, that is mighty, that is stronger than anything we know. Lord, I pray that as we continue walking with you, that we continue to forge this relationship with you. And eventually we get to a point where we can also snatch others from the fire. I praise, I praise you and I thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.